Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that gives you the knowledge, wisdom, and information to be successful as a cybersecurity leader. This is G. Mark Hardy, and today I'm pleased to have in the studio a guest, Rebecca Mossman, a friend of mine I've known for, she was a number of years, probably a couple a couple decades, but you certainly don't look that old, uh, but he's got at least 20 years of experience in, in cybersecurity and a number of different management roles. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, the reason I wanted you to come on board is that there's a lot of things people have questions on, such as as you get to a new role or as you hire people into new roles, because you've been experienced in this for a number of opportunities over your career. Uh, let's start out, I guess, a little bit about, let's say, individually establishing yourself in a new position and uh, kind of your ideas on that. What would you suggest? Yeah, I think one of the key aspects of joining a new role or a new position or even you know entering somewhere new is to learn about your environment and understand uh, your partners and key stakeholders and and people you'll be working with throughout your tenure at the new place i think that's key to the the first part of establishing yourself well, keep on going. What else would you suggest? <laughs> I think learning about the environment and and the services that you're providing, um, how your product fits within the rest of the portfolio and the work that you're doing at the organization and the goals of your key stakeholders, uh, timeframes that they'd like to achieve them. And it, especially, um, you know, joining somewhere new, uh, you want to demonstrate the value that you'll be providing for an organization or a service. And once you start demonstrating that value, it shows that you have an understanding of those key pieces that you learned once you entered the environment, the service that you're working in. So from your experience, when you start a new job, or maybe even if you hired somebody in a new job, there's always a job description. I mean, they got this, 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 and this. What's your experience been? I mean, do you find out that you end up hitting in all four corners on everything that's on the list? Or is it really kind of you make it up as you go along or just a few key things? And then how do you differentiate early on? What is it that that new job really entails as compared to what did they just put in there to maybe satisfy HR? I think the job description and the work you're signing up for, if you ask the right questions and you establish that baseline before you join an organization, it's very important because that will lay the foundation for what you'll actually be doing when you get there. So there shouldn't be surprises and it shouldn't cover 100% of what's in the job description, but it should cover 100% of what you agreed on with your new employer, or even if you're in consulting on the job that you're there to perform, right? So it's interesting. So if you're a new hire, of course, you've got some agreed upon, whether it's verbally or whatever, as compared to just the written stuff. But as a consultant, it really comes down to a statement of work, because we both worked in the consulting world before. And so from that perspective, if we just kind of a little divergent over here in the consulting for people who say, hey, I want to go work for a consulting firm as compared to maybe a regular uh, direct role in an organization where you're supporting that organization. 
have you seen a significant difference? That is to say, you can join a consulting firm and pretty much do the same thing over and over and over again? Or is it really, hey, we need you to figure stuff out and do whatever it is that needs to get done? Or does that really take place in both worlds? I think that takes place in both worlds. And it really depends on the role that you're signing up for and maybe where you're placed in the organization and how much you're able to apply critical thinking to the problem set. So if you're a regular employee that is supposed to, you know, move widgets around, um, then that's your role. But if you're expected to think critically about the problems, it doesn't matter if you're an employee or a consultant. So which brings up an interesting point. So if you're brand new and you've got your critical thinking bit turned on, it means that you're looking at the organization perhaps a different way that people have been there a while. As I like to say, before you drink the Kool-Aid, you know, write things down, stuff that's like, why do they do that? And things such as that. Because otherwise, after a few weeks, it's, well, that's why we've always done it before. And then potentially you lose the value of that new set of eyes. That being said, sometimes at an entry level position or even at the new person, depending on the corporate culture, they don't always appreciate a visionary. They sometimes say, you're only here to be a functionary. You're not here to tell us what to do. I mean, that's what I, my, my experience of in the consulting world. When you start out early on, it's like, yeah, go out and be billable. So how do you reconcile that desire to be able to say, hey, I see something that maybe we all can fix as compared to just keep your mouth shut. And after a while, you lose that opportunity because you just kind of live with it. I think a lot of the ability to speak up and, and think critically starts with confidence, being confident in, in what you're thinking about, articulating clearly, and being respectful. That's really the cornerstone. If you're not respectful about your thoughts, nobody will want to hear them, no matter how you know, critically you've thought through the problem, if it you present it in a way that's insulting or demeaning to other people, they're going to shut you out regardless. But if you approach it in a very respectful way that really brings them with you on the journey, demonstrates that you can see clearly they've thought about the problem in some way or it's relatable, it, it's much easier to work through those communications and, and apply critical thinking to something if you come from a place of respect. So there's a little, a little bit of Dale Carnegie in here in a way where you go ahead and win friends and influence people, suggesting that there's approach if you want other people to engage in your ideas, sometimes it's helpful to make them think it was their idea. And I think it was Ronald Reagan who said, if you don't care who gets the credit, you get a lot of work done. So as a new set of eyes, you can come in there, but would that potentially be, if you will, a layer eight item where it's on the politics? Because some organizations encourage kind of a bottom-up idea generation to say, hey, you guys can see what's going on. And other organizations are much more top-down where kind of like the old poster with a gorilla, if I wanted your opinion, I'd beat it out of you. Well, I don't think any of us really want to work there, but I think your your thoughts about respect are really, really key. Any strategies or suggestions for how to start going about asking the right questions in the right way, if you will, so you either don't sound like a two-year-old, why are we doing this, why are we doing this, why are we doing this, or being a nudge where you're just constantly bugging people, but at the same time, 
you're able to do so in a respectful way that makes a difference. Any thoughts on that? I think after exploring thoughts, I'm trying to think of a way to phrase that I am nagging and nudging. <laughs> so without, uh, you know, demeaning the, the quality of the nudging and the nagging, I, I do feel like there's some regards to that, right? Um, and persistence. And uh, if I didn't phrase the question correctly to get at what I'm trying to understand, asking it again in a different way or to different teams and, until you get to the point where there's a level of understanding that you know if something's there or not to extract. And if there's not something there to extract, explaining how those thoughts fit in with things that exist. So it's less selling the ideas that are there and more showing how your thoughts plug in with the system of systems that exist. Because if you're going into some place that exists, you're really complementing things that are already there. So if you come in and try to overlay, uh, you know, that's where you start getting into challenges with respect and understanding and communication. Getting that. So to a certain extent, there's really two things you can look at. One is, hey, figuring out this diamond mining and hey, this is ideas that you probably have, but you didn't even recognize, if you will. They call that latent information where once you say, oh yeah, you're right. But then there are also existing ideas. And we kind of joke about the fact that it says, no, nobody has an ugly baby. But if you come in an organization, you look at it and you go like, seriously? What are the alternatives to you know, saying, well, your baby's ugly, but doing it in a diplomatic way? Is there a more constructive way to approach something where you look at it and you go, this just isn't making sense? I think versus the ugly baby, uh, I've actually heard the concept from you, I think, <laughs> where, you know, we want to feed and nurture the services that we're proud of and that are existing. And it's not that the baby's ugly. It's that we want to be a part of the nourishment and growth mm -hmm. of something that everyone's proud of. So taking pride in, in, you know, the existence of, of that service or, or product and demonstrating you want to be a part of it and security and our, our objectives are complementing and building and a part of it, making it a whole. And, and I think you mentioned early on talking about our product and whatever we offer. So if you're in an organization where you're delivering a product or service, but you're not a cybersecurity company per se, because a lot of us work in organizations where the main goal is to produce a product or service that's going to be of value to their customers. And it's not just going to be the security. We're there to help protect, to enable, to empower, and all that other good, happy stuff that comes along. And yet, sometimes you look at structures, you're like, why are we doing this? And things such as that. So you talk about the positive side, which is let's go ahead and make it go better. But if it really is a horrible idea, and we've always done it that way, has been their attitude, is there any way to kind of break somebody of that habit? Or are you the wrong person to go ahead and lead that charge because you're new? Uh, does it involve enlisting the role of others? And if so, creating other people who are interested? And if so, any, any thoughts on that whole idea? I think that brings us back to the place of asking questions. Why has something been done the way it's done? And generally, when you show genuine interest, and understanding and perspective of why you'd like to understand more, 
people will share why something is the way it is. You know, something broke when we did it a different way. It was challenging another way. It's resource intensive another way. And you might come to the conclusion that it's absolutely the way it should be and that there's nothing to tune. But so my, my thought is this, and, and we're trying to get into the kind of another concept here, is that if we walk in the door, fairly new, first month or two, we go, yeah, I don't know about this. And you ask around a little bit and you're not really getting a solid justification because you're right. Somebody may say, well, I've always done it that way. And that's not a good justification. And that might be all you get. Or if you want your opinion, we'll beat it out of you. But therefore, it suggests, in my opinion, that we're not necessarily the person to lead that charge. You weren't necessarily brought there unless you're brought in at the senior executive level to lead an organizational change. And so as a result, you need to enlist the assistance, participation, involvement of others in what we call stakeholders. And so as a stakeholder, this is somebody who has a vested interest in what it is that you're trying to accomplish or do. And as a result, that suggests that the whole science, if you will, or, or art probably, of stakeholder management is important. Any ideas in terms of that I, uh, general subject for somebody who's coming into an organization to kind of figure out the lay of the land and, and with whom should you align and how do you identify those who are going to help and maybe even identify pitfalls of places there you could run into opposition? This really, when we go back to that you have a new set of eyes on this situation. Somebody may tell you who the stakeholders are, but taking that you know view from the moon down on what you're trying to accomplish and identifying are those the right stakeholders and maybe enlisting other stakeholders that understand what you're trying to accomplish or why it's valuable, how, how you're adding value is important in creating, you know, a healthy stakeholder set. Yeah. So, so really is a couple of things. One is of course the direct involved in whatever you're doing. So if, if, if you're doing a project, your stakeholders could be the people who are funding it, who are doing the work, who are gaining the output of the particular product. But there's also kind of a layer eight level in stakeholder management that often isn't addressed. At least I hasn't seen it written down formally, which is, how do you bring in people as a political offset to those who might be opposed to what you're doing? For example, you know that you're there to accomplish a particular goal and you encounter organizational resistance. It could be somebody's obstinate. It could be just inertia because a lot of organizations have been around a while. There's an existing uh, network of people with connections and you're tending to disrupt that. So, Therefore, to be successful, it's a little bit like trying to find a, a trump card in a way. You have to say, okay, if somebody's a jack, I need to find a queen. Or if somebody's a queen, I need to find a king. Somebody got a little bit more power in there. And as a result, you could bring in stakeholders who really aren't directly involved like a typical stakeholder. But I could get, for example, the vice president of sales really interested in what I'm doing, explain it to her what I was going on, et cetera. And then if someone tries, well, I think it's a really dumb idea, she can stand up and said, you all get a job and you all get paid because of my team in sales. And I like this. At that point in time, you've got some really good top cover. So the thought is coming in early on is assessing the lay of the land may also being identifying, if you will, for lack of a better term, sponsors. 
people who could either formally or informally sponsor not just your particular project or ideas, what you were hired to do, but even you as an individual. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think if you're thinking of what you're delivering as a value-added product, there should be stakeholders like that to enable that concept. So whether it's enabling a sales channel or enabling improvement of the product through the service, it's pretty easy to pull someone in as a key stakeholder when you demonstrate the value of your product. And a product could be anything from a policy to a service and consulting. Um, and when I'm saying consulting here, I mean internal, like explaining how things apply to the environment or um, what they're trying to deliver, um, as well as, uh, you know, actual product development. So kind of the thought then is you might run into conflicting priorities where you might find one person who says, I want X, and then someone says, I want not X. And if you were brought in to either deliver X or remove X, then there's going to be some natural conflict that's inherent. And, and this may predate your introduction of yourself to the organization, as that's kind of part of assessing the situation. So in a way, it's almost, uh, to use kind of military term, you're assessing the battlefield. You're going to go out there and you're going to take a look and see. And sometimes battlefield is not a bad analogy when you look at organizational relationships and things like that, any ideas of kind of good ways to get that feel without, if you will, stepping on a landmine by going out and venturing too far and maybe proposing the wrong idea to the wrong person when the right idea to the right person could go a whole lot farther. What's a good way to kind of query and ask and, and figure stuff out? Yeah, it's funny you say that about the battlefield. I, I think when we were talking about establishing yourself and learning the environment. I was thinking of like a, a sit rep when I was in army G2. That's probably where I learned that skill and that, that muscle of how to understand what's in front of you and communicate it effectively. And sometimes you may just have one view of that battlefield and it's not a complete picture. So gaining that complete picture is what's really important. And you know, in those communications and talking with key stakeholders, you start filling in the picture more clearly, and then it makes a complete package versus, you know, trying to develop the package on your own. You'll never have that full situation view. And there's, there's different techniques and things like that for stakeholder management. You can define the key processes that exist within your organization, look at the inputs and the outputs. And then who consumes those outputs and who provides or supplies those inputs? And then that then gives you sort of a short list. And recognizing that the output of one phase could be an input to the next one, this can kind of loop back on itself. But there actually are ways then that when you walk in, you don't have to look around and go, huh, but you can get right to work and start to say, what's the business process? How does security enable that business process, or in some cases, maybe inhibit it, depending upon the, the health of how security is implemented there, who uses the output of that and therefore is going to care about it, and then who provides the input is usually someone who's paying for it, perhaps, it, or the resource that you're paying for to get it in there. That gives you a little bit better of a structure. So from that perspective, we've, we've got that. And when you run into conflicting priorities, as you said, scoping it out by understanding what's out there, we have a little bit better feel for 
maybe where to stand and where not to stand. I was um, talking to somebody today who is trying to get through a document and they'd made a bunch of changes to it. And these are people who are not security experts, but this is going out for publication and said, well, we needed this to change and this to change. And my advice was, well, choose your battles carefully. Because if you argue about everything, someone's going to dig in their heels and be entrenched. Most people want to feel validated. And if they have a feeling that say change happy to glad, okay, happy to glad. Don't, don't fight over that. But if somebody changes true to false or clear to cloudy or does something that causes your organization to not look like the expert that they are, then that's where you need to kind of fight that battle. And you do so not by arguing, well, this is my writing or this is my stuff, but you argue on behalf of the organization. If we change this, it, how does that help our organization look better to our customers, our clients, et cetera, because it blurs a distinction. It makes a difference. It's just open-ended questions like that that allow someone to give them a way to recover. Because again, going back to the kind of Dale Carnegie stuff is you want to give people a graceful way to change their mind. If they make a choice and you challenge them, most humans will then defend their choice rather than listen to the logic of how things might be different. It's not the scientific method that's used at the political level layer eight in organizations. Scientific method, you come up with the paper, here's my null hypothesis, here's my experiment, I've demonstrated X. And a whole bunch of other scientists go, well, we just did it all, we got Y, 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 and Y, and nobody got X, so you must have, oh yeah, right, I, my stuff was contaminated, I had bad data, whatever, and then you say, okay, now I believe Y. And unfortunately, people don't work that way most of the time. So it's a bit of a challenge. As a leader then, if we get brought in a leadership role, oftentimes we're given oversight responsibility. And I think we've all kind of seen that picture of an elephant where everybody sees a little piece of it. And okay, this towel is a rope and the, this is foot and the trunk and the ear and everything else and stuff like that. Do we find that from an oversight perspective, do your people see what needs to be done differently? And if you come into an organization and you find out that a lot of your reports, whether they're direct or otherwise, or even your stakeholders, see important stuff differently, how do you get them all to either see the entire elephant or at least get them all to feel the ear or something like that using that metaphor? I think a lot of clear communications are important. A lot of conversations and being open to hearing multiple inputs, not just from the team and including them in conversation with other groups, building trust, really keeping them in the loop on various conversations. And as you build that trust, it really opens people up because they know that you're, you're in it to win it with them and not working against any of their previous understandings or agendas or, or, or like you mentioned, uh, their positions. You're really trying to genuinely understand their positions and the positions of, you know, your peers and other stakeholders and, and bringing them with you in those conversations is really key. And another useful technique is to kind of meet with your folks one-on-one -on -one and ask them, what are the three most important things that you need to focus on? And then go to each person and you might find out 
those are not the three things that you thought they needed to focus on. And it wasn't because anybody's done anything wrong. It was just a, a difference in perception. And so it's a nice way to go ahead and get people focusing on the same thing by being able to ask questions and ask people. Hopefully it doesn't have to happen a whole lot, but until you get a line, what are the most important things in security that we need to be doing? What are the systems that are most important to our environment? What are the actions that we can take or not take that have the biggest impact on the success of the organization that's hosting us, that, that where we work for, or if we're a, co a consultant and the client? Those are questions I don't often hear, but I think they're very powerful because if you create an environment where there's no fear, where someone could say something and say, I think we are supposed to do X, Y, and Z. And in fact, you're supposed to be doing A, B, and C. Instead of going, yo, stupid idiot, what's wrong with you? You're lucky to have a job here. Well, of course, then no one's going to ever volunteer information again. Creating an environment of trust where somebody can speak up, maybe get it wrong, but not get whacked. And again, this is parenthetically a huge thing when it comes to cybersecurity awareness, where somebody can feel comfortable calling up and saying, I think I just downloaded something I shouldn't have. I clicked on something I shouldn't have. I did something that might be a problem. And instead of somebody saying, okay, you're on report or we're telling your boss to go, hey, thanks, let's go work on it right now. We'll defend the organization. Whether they screwed it up or not, the point is you validate them and say, thank you for being part of our front line. And if you do that on a regular basis with your awareness training, and I've heard some organizations basically say, we're implementing cybersecurity awareness. Anybody who screws up is fired. Well, that's not going to get people to make the right choices. They're just going to be afraid to do anything. But if we can create that same environment within our workforce, not just the average worker, but in the cybersecurity team, to be able to go to your boss and said, hey, I think about this. Or as you, had, you, know, as you said, you say, what am I responsibilities. I say X, Y, Z. You go, okay, well, let's take a look at what other things could be done. Is A important? Yes. Is A more important than X? Well, yeah, it is. How would B? Oh yeah, B. B more important than Y? Okay. Now you're starting to bring people around. And once they see that you're invested in their success, that you're not there to just kind of beat up on them and say, ah, oh, I got to look good. I'm going to do so at your expense. I think you gain a whole lot more. And as a result, by being able to move people forward, we try to get things accomplished, get them done, and move on. But what happens when we try to look at getting things done, but we get focused on perfection? We got to get it absolutely right. Is there a problem with that? And if so, what's the better way to think about it? I think perfection is great on paper, and it's not really based in reality. We talked about conflicting priorities and moving things forward. If you wait to move to something new until something's 100% complete and the, the picture's totally painted, it, you will have one picture. And we know that in this, you know, complex and diverse world that we're in now, all the systems of systems, it, it's near impossible to have 100% perfection on, on one thing. And it's good to think of the broader scale, like you mentioned going back to prioritization, uh, is this m measurably be better than where we were before? And do we have other risks that are a higher priority now? So 
continuously looking at that gauge of risks and how how much we've improved in the plan. I mean, unless, you know, 100% completion of closure of something that's going to expose you, you know, that that's probably an edge case versus, you know, significant change of programs and in progress. So what we have then is things that need to get done. And I think one of the challenges that people have, and especially if you've ever run a small business, is that you get good at something, you get really good, you get excellent at it, you get outstanding at it, and then you can do it with perfection, practically speaking. And then you have to delegate. And the person you're delegating to usually by definition doesn't have the level of expertise, level of years of experience, et cetera. That's the way organizations often work. And they're going to come back and they give you something that's not at 100%. But it might be good enough. And how do we, how do you break that perfection mentality? Oh, it's got to be perfect. Cause you kept driving for perfection all the time. You're going to burn out your teams and you're really just going to miss the mark because you're not going to get the progress you need when you realize that close enough is going to work, but perfection is the enemy of progress. Any thoughts in terms of people? I mean, for me, I kind of get perfectionist from time to time. And a lot of people do. And there's nothing wrong with it in certain areas. If I'm going in for surgery, I want a doctor with a perfection complex. I think that would be really nice. But a lot of what we do is dynamic and has to be addressed with a lot of other things right behind it. And at some point in time, we move along. Most of us don't have organizational goals. Remove 100% of vulnerabilities with a CBSS score of 0.1 all the way up to 10.0 every 24 hours, it's just not going to happen. So how do we figure out what's good enough and then validate that with our leadership team to make sure that we're not misaligned? Any ideas or thoughts on that one? I think the review of what those problem sets are and the prioritization of those with the key stakeholders will get close to at least perfection in the system. So even though there's not going to be perfection in the solution, if you agree with all the stakeholders what the expected outcome is and working together to define what that is and agreeing that 100% is not the goal, then you have achieved perfection. So, so really perfection is not if you will, a raw, an absolute score, but it's a relative score. And it's a relative score toward what management sends out to say, this is acceptable risk. Because really what we're into in cybersecurity is risk management and communicating risk levels to management levels who have the empowerment to make those decisions. So I, I've said this for years, our most important responsibility as cybersecurity professionals is to ensure that management can make informed risk-based decisions. And in doing so then, a personal concept of I've got to be perfect, et cetera, may represent an inappropriate management of risk. Now, let me, let me get into that a little bit. Because we say, well, we still got vulnerabilities out there. Well, not all vulnerabilities are, can really hurt you. And the analogy I like is to say, you got a hole in your pocket. Now, if my hole in my pocket is small and a penny will fall through from time to time, and it cost me $10 at the tailors to get the trousers fixed, 
I don't think I'm going to lose a thousand pennies or thousand one actually to make it cost effective in the time I'm going to be owning those trousers. So it's like, yeah, live with it. Put a penny in there. It goes down. Eventually I stop putting pennies in there. I just don't worry about it. But if my whole wallet's going to fall through, that's a problem. And I'm going to get that fixed right away. Therefore, in terms of defining what's good enough, what's good enough is the acceptable level of risk that management has selected for the organization. And they don't make that selection independently. They make that with the insight and the inputs that we provide as cybersecurity professionals. And if we start thinking that way, and we can remove our personal bias toward either excellence or non-excellence or whatever, and focus on, here's what we expose the organization to then I think we, we've come a whole lot further. So when we come down to that hold out for more or move on, what, what then becomes that thought? And what's, what's the key definition that we have to come up with at that point? When do we know that we're, we're finished? And I think it's really kind of a definition of when, is, when are we done? And so we're done when we've met the risk objectives and we've accomplished it. And then we just move on. We go on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Because there's always going to be this endless stream of activities and I don't think we'll ever get to the point where we say, you know what? My inbox has been empty for a week. Well, if your inbox has been empty for about four hours, there's probably a communications problem with your server and mail server. It just never stops. It, it, it doesn't shut off. So as we go forward in our careers and things like that, what we realize is that because technology changes, most of us like to grow in our skill sets. And organizationally, we try to improve what we're doing. Uh, what is it about doing certain things and, and our skills and the like? Uh, and any thoughts in terms of skill set development? And did we just do it once and then put it on the shelf or, or whatever? What do you think? I think it's great when people reuse existing skills to help build those muscles of how to use them and learn and adapt. And eventually, you need to retool with changing technology, changing environments, even changing positions to really adapt to the problems that you're trying to address. So skills should be continuously used uh, like a muscle, and uh, you build it, and then eventually you need to retune and adapt to the situation you're in. So as security leaders, and some of us are CISOs, and some of us are aspiring to be CISOs, is there a reasonable amount of time that we ought to be spending in terms of skill development out of our 40-hour week or whatever? 40-plus hour a week. We'll just be politically correct on that. We're not going to get into bragging about how hard do you have to work. And in the Navy, we used to call 12-hour days half days. You only had 12-hour shift. No big deal. But looking at it from that perspective, is there a kind of an ideal mix, anything that you have found in your career that represents a wise allocation of your time or maybe even the time of your direct reports of keeping those skill sets up to date as compared to, well, we got to run with what we have. Is there, we got security conferences, we have security courses, we have self-study, obviously on the job training. There's tons of ways to do that. What are your thoughts about helping people be on top of what they need to know to not only do what the job they got to do today, but to be able to be effective potentially tomorrow. I think it's less uh, a matter of carving aside a number of hours or certain allocation and more having that sort of rudder that 
defines where you want to be in the future. If you know you want to continue learning and continue in a, a certain role, you know that that role will change over time. And looking at near-term needs, like six months, one year, two years, what am I going to need to know a year from now to stay relevant and adapt and continue improving what I'm doing today? So what you're doing today there's always room for improvement. Um, whether you have a great template and a great foundation, it's always great to reevaluate that and learn if there are new tools, new processes, technologies, or, or skills to move that forward. So it's really a continuous pro process. And depending on the rate of acceleration that you want or the complexity of the problem you're trying to address, that will really determine the frequency and what you need to learn. Great insight. So for us, we can read what we need to get done. We can see hopefully direction of the organization, maybe new technologies we're implementing, we're acquiring that we're having to enable. And then from your observations with the teams that you worked with before, do you find that providing that ongoing training, certs, et cetera, works well as a retention tool for people who want to stick around because, well, this organization really invests in me? Or is it one of those things where you go like, man, we could care less and they're just going to go on for another job just because there's a couple more thousand dollars dangled at them. What do you think helps keep people to stick around in a really hyper-competitive market like we have now where just about any of us could probably get a job at five other places in the next week? I think understanding their goals and objectives and working with a person's individual needs is the key. It's And whether they move to another company, we're all in information security. <laughs> we're all, we all have the global same goal. And, you know, if they take those skills and take them to a greater position within the organization or elsewhere, that's a testament to your leadership. And you hope that people grow and develop into new roles. And you hope that they stay with you at the organization. Sometimes that that just doesn't fit because of timing or situations. Uh, but your ultimate goal is to continuously learn and enable people to learn and grow. So let's summarize what we've covered today. We've talked about the importance when you're establishing yourself in a new position that you're going to be able to see the organization from a set of outside eyes. But very shortly, you're going to then begin to accept everything the way it is. So use this new insight to be able to provide recommendations for improvement. And if you're bringing people into your organization, encourage them to offer suggestions early on. That window goes away no matter how much we try to keep it open just simply because of human nature. Things get accustomed to what we're doing and then we never see them anymore. It's just like we've always done it that way. When it comes to relationships, gain understanding of other people's needs and ask questions. Of course, consulting, we often do that. And in doing so, we're trying to not only understand what the other person needs, but to get some buy-in for our initiatives. It's kind of the saying I'd mentioned, like your baby isn't ugly. We just want it to thrive. And so when approaching somebody else's idea that seems a little bit suspect, 
uh, be careful and cautious as how you go about it. People tend to be proud of the work that they've done. And we want to come at it in such a perspective that you let them know that you care about the output, you want it to do well, but hey, maybe there's a way we could do it better. And again, there's always a thought that if you can make somebody else think it was their idea, they're going to be more likely to follow it. With regard to stakeholder management, keeping track of all the individuals, of course, identifying them that can have an impact on the success or failure of your project or plan, but also consider that you can create your own stakeholder. As a political offset to somebody who may be powerful and opposed to what you're doing, you might be able to find somebody even more powerful to be able to act as that offset. Be able to go ahead and have a progress plan that you can communicate regularly with multiple stakeholders. Keep them in the loop, not too often, but often enough that they understand what's going on so that A, you know that they can maintain awareness of what you're doing, and B, you can demonstrate the progress and that their confidence in you is well-founded. With respect to priorities, it's a matter of resolving conflicting priorities. Ideally, as security professionals, we help management make informed risk-based decisions. And in doing so, we help select from a number of choices that which is best for the organization. With respect to oversight, you can lead the organization by communicating effectively, whether it's merely to your coworker, to your entire team, or to the organization as a whole. We alluded to the project manager visual of an elephant where the trunk is only being felt and then the ear and then the leg and the tail, and it's all different perceptions. Your clear communications, ideally through effective storytelling, will help people see, if you will, the entire elephant, and then you'll be able to communicate what you're looking to do. With respect to completing a project, perfection is the enemy of progress. Yes, it's great to have everything done exactly correct. And in some particular cases, like you're going to put a satellite up on orbit, there may be requirements for that. But in general, there's a point that you reach where you have to define the word done. This is good enough. Do we hold out for more improvement or do we move on? And from a risk perspective, trying to paint into the corner, get that 98th, that 99th, that 99.9 percentile may not provide a return on investment that is warranted to the amount of effort you're putting in there. So understand when enough is enough, if you will, so that you can level set your effort accordingly. And then lastly, it's important that individuals, both you as well as your team and those around you, continue to do personal development. Skills develop like muscles through use. And by adapting to change, you demonstrate an ability to be able to do more. And as a result, you may be turned to in the future for more responsibility to be able to handle projects that are of greater and greater impact. Well, I thank Rebecca Mossman for being part of our show today, longtime friend, respected cybersecurity leader, and glad that you were able to go ahead and spend some time with us. Well, this is G. Mark Hardy for CISO Tradecraft, as always, welcoming you to go ahead and follow us on LinkedIn, share our show with others that you have so they know where you got your good ideas. And until the next time, stay safe out there.